Thanks for listening to the Who's Flying the Plane podcast. I'm Alex, and I'll be chatting to innovative and unique people about their lives, careers, and creative projects. My guest this week is best-selling author and journalist Alice Vincent. We spoke about what it was like growing up in the country, some of her journalism and writing, and what it's like being seen as the spokesperson for millennials and their addiction to houseplants. Yeah, so I was in the <laughs> the singularly boring, I think, uh, realm of North Buckinghamshire. And I think when people hear Buckinghamshire, they think Cotswolds and, and where George Clooney lives and things. Um, and it, it's not that big. <laughs> it, was, it was what I like to describe as the rural donut around Milton Keynes. Um, and, you know, it was a village and it was... I went back there recently for another book that I'm working on and um, it actually struck me at how pretty a village it was but for me it was just where I grew up and um, you know small farming communities everyone knows each other's business that kind of thing. Did it just seem like everyone was growing up like that when you were a kid or were you aware that you had this countryside upbringing? No i I was one of those kids that when I remember when I was watching like live and kicking or something and people would phone up and be like it's you know it's Sarah from London I'd be like people don't live in London like London is just full of people like the Queen uh, you know it was preposterous <laughs> to me that that people could live in big cities um and I, I'm not sure if I thought everybody lived in villages because you know I, I watched films and, and tv and stuff but um I enjoy, you know, I was very, very fortunate. I knew I was fortunate, I think. You know, I had a really happy, stable childhood. My parents had a very nurturing and, and steady relationship. I was incredibly privileged in a number of ways. Um, and I had, you know, the freedom of it. Like, my friends and I could just go and hang out because my our parents knew that there would be someone who was keeping an eye on us somewhere. So, yeah, what I would say, though, is when I was a teenager, it found... I found it incredibly claustrophobic. Um, it's an ironic thing because there's all the space and the time and the quiet in the world, but I couldn't go anywhere. And I desperately craved kind of life and the big city. And I spent, I kind of lived through the pages of the enemy, um, reading about guerrilla gigs and festivals. And and I started, started going to gigs when I was a teenager, but the whole thing was this enormous near military exercise of arranging lifts and buying tickets and, and and doing all these kind of things that are very difficult with no mobile phone signal or internet connection in a village. I had a similar thing when I was a teenager because I would, you know, I lived about half an hour away from Bournemouth and Bournemouth is pretty low down on people's priorities for a tour. So it was kind of a, a real, you know, I spent a lot of time on trains to Southampton and Bristol and, and you know, places like that. So I think I can relate a little bit to the desperately trying to persuade your parents to pick you up when you get back off the last train and stuff like that. What was your first sort of way of getting out of countryside? Because you live in London now. So what was your first step away from uh, Buckinghamshire? Uh, so I went to university in Newcastle, which wasn't really my first choice, but uh, was the best choice it transpired. And it was a very long way away. Um, and it was it was totally, um, it was kind of perfect in a number of ways. It's a small, very friendly campus, like not even based on a campus, like city-based university. And, um, but it felt enormous and terribly metropolitan to me. So 
I loved it. It was, uh, and I've met so many people who are so different from those I'd met already. Um, and and that was that was my first taste of urban life. And then after that, I moved to New York for a bit, which was a bit of a shock to the system, um, but also a lot of fun. So yeah, and I've not moved back to the countryside since, and I don't think I ever will. <laughs> what did you do out in New York? Um, I landed an internship. Um, I'd I knew from my kind of my mid-teens from about 15 16 I knew I wanted to be a journalist uh which I, I still maintain as a kind of stroke of luck because if you know what you want to do you can go about achieving it when you don't know that things are quite difficult um and so I'd been doing interning in like you know two week essentially work experience um in like two week breaks during my university holidays and stuff while I was a student and I'd racked up quite a lot of these um by the time I'd graduated and enough to know that I just didn't want to do it in London again because you kind of didn't really get any access or you you know people didn't in the late noughties people didn't really know what to do with work experience kids they were totally unpaid um and I thought well if I'm going to be unpaid I'll go and be unpaid somewhere quite fun and and basically I was um doing work experience in the enemy offices a new editor had just started and I think it's because her first week I managed to kind of get a chat with her in her office and she had been at Nylon magazine before joining NME and so she set me up with um with an internship there basically which was fantastic and a lot of fun and it was like something out of a film it was ridiculous um and I funded it by doing an awful lot of part-time work throughout my degree. What was the step towards uh, writing for The Telegraph? Because that's something that you still do now. Would you consider that your your main job at the moment? Uh, so I've got a nine to five um, with Penguin. So my like my daily work is um, as a features editor at penguin.co.uk. They've launched an editorial site there coming up two years ago. And, and so it's a, it's a writing, commissioning, editing, like features and long form articles about books and, and reading, which is... Um, pretty heavenly to be honest Uh, but the the beauty of it is that I am able to write for other publications so I have a column with a telegraph um, uh, and I write for other places as well Um, but yeah I it's so funny I'd been I'd returned to London well I I moved to London I'd never lived there before Um, with no job I did some temping and um, various paid internships and then I landed a job HuffPost and then shortly after that I moved to Telegraph and it was the kind of role that doesn't come up very often which is a sort of junior staff writer role specifically on the arts desk and yeah that was probably the job that kind of defined the first chunk of my career I was there for seven years um, mostly writing writing every day really Um, and it was a such um, an incredible education. I'm not trained as a journalist, so it's an incredible education, not only in journalism, but also in writing and writing to brief and writing rapidly and finding a story and communicating and contacting people. All the kind of the bare bones of storytelling. I was taught by a group of very kind and generous editors at that on that arts desk. You've sort of segued yourself very nicely into talking about Rootbound, which is your book that came out last year. And 
it's a lovely mixture of a memoir and a book about horticulture and gardening as a um, as a craft, as a pastime. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your first foray into that, because I understand that it was from in the, it was in the wake of a breakup that you started getting back into growing things because you had a relationship with your grand your grandfather when you were very young, where you would be involved with his garden. That really fascinated you. So, um, can you remember what it was like to sort of rekindle your interest in that kind of thing? Yeah. So your chronology is largely right. The I had I'd been gardening before the breakup by by a few months, maybe a year or so. Um, but I was, you know, much like I was an untrained journalist, I was like a completely untrained gardener. Like I was fortunate, you know, in that countryside uh, growing up, I had access to a garden. I had parents who gardened a bit, um, but no interest in it whatsoever. And so when I was in my mid twenties, you know, when I was also simultaneously like going clubbing and um, doing all the other stuff you do when you're 25, like, I, I also found myself really loving tending to this balcony garden, but it was like this deeply shameful secret. It wasn't even like what gardening has sort of become now, um, which is this sort of cottage corey wellness, mindful activity. It was like, what the hell are you doing? Are you 80? It was like not a thing you really wanted to talk about at all. So um, I kind of t- nurtured this sort of secret um fascination with growing things and then yeah like on paper everything was good right I had this nice flat had this nice boyfriend who I thought was it I thought was the one and um great sounding job like mini breaks g plan furniture like the whole thing and I just (laughs) and I just wasn't happy and then and I don't think I realized that how unhappy I was and then um, the person I was with decided that it wasn't working out very, I don't think suddenly for him, but I think very suddenly for me. Uh, and that yeah, our relationship ended incredibly swiftly. And then obviously I was like, well, where am I going to live? Um, and, and then do I even like my job that much? And there was a lot of, it was your classic quarter life crisis, I suppose. But in all of that turbulence, I'm, I'm someone who really is has always been a planner and suddenly I couldn't plan anything. And so the way I kind of grounded myself among all of this confusion and all of this upheaval was to connect with the growing world around me. So whether that's other people's window boxes or community gardens or the buddleia that creeps up out of the tracks of the railways or when I had access to it, my balcony... Um, and also the way that gardening and cultivating had affected the lives of those before us. So in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, as a feminist act at the time of the suffragettes, there are all of these moments I found historically where people would go to ground. And then, of course, with kind of uncanny timing, a couple of months after my book came out, um, a pandemic hit and people went to ground and they started to garden in ways that they hadn't before. And, and I just found that really interesting. You can go over to the Who's Flying the Plane YouTube channel to see our new series, In the Studio, which gives a behind the scenes look into how makers work. 
You can already watch episodes with a ceramicist, a jewellery maker and some traditional method printers. And there are many more episodes to come soon. So just search Who's Flying the Plane on YouTube. You mentioned before that when you first got into plants and things like that, that your friends around you would ask you what on earth you're doing because it just wasn't a fashionable thing. Whereas now, like, my room is, is full of plants. Everyone I know is sort of on the, a similar wavelength there. They're everywhere. And because there's a lot of writing about your book, a lot of reviews to talk about you as this sort of spokesperson for the millennial houseplant obsession and that kind of thing. And I know this is probably, you know, a little bit difficult for you to answer humbly, but do you think that your social media and your writing about it did sort of influence that? Do you think you, will you be happy to be considered someone who sort of started that out in a, in a way? It's been a really interesting thing because of a few things that, yeah, I wrote about when, you know, when I first started writing about gardening, I did so for The Telegraph and I was very much covering that beat, that kind of millennial houseplant resurgence, which I did find really interesting and still find interesting and, and is kind of written through Rootbound as an examination of what our generation, like what the impact of being kind of wrenched from the outside and put in front of an MSN messenger and Windows 98 kind of did to us. Um, so in that way, I'm like, yeah, that that's what I've lived. That's what I've written about. That's what fascinates me. And that's fine. But I, the, the, I'm not sure I did it just by myself. I think, and, and this is another thing the book sort of examines that actually we are seeing the fact that your room is full of plants, the fact that we are fascinated with growing things is because the world is moving too quickly. We can get everything in a swipe of a button. Um, plants don't work like that. They take a level of control away from us. Um, and that is actually weirdly satisfying. And there's a lot to be found. Um, there's an awful lot of scientific study looking at the healing benefits of engaging with growing things and, and the outside world more generally. And um, and so I, I think it's sort of, it was probably going to happen anyway. I just happened to be shouting about it at the time when it did. Um, and I also think that it's broader than probably just our generation, but we, we have kind of clung onto it in an interesting way. But this is one of the things I found so interesting when I was researching Rootbound and writing it was that, you know, this happened with the Victorians. They were, you know, during the Victorian era, there was massive urbanisation. There were huge numbers of people moving to the city. They were living in transitory temporary accommodation and they got really into houseplants because they could put them in their houses. They could without having to attach any sense of permanence to them when the whole world outside was really smoggy. Like, you know, that this isn't anything new. Um, and it, to me, it, it's fascinating, it's happening again, and it's kind of heartening as well. Like, yes, it probably takes a climate crisis for us to realise what we're about to lose, which is tragic, but if we're aware of it, we can do something about it. It's a very strange concept that natural things can be fashionable and come in waves like that. Things like a cheese plant and macrame and all that, that's all very 1970s, and it's weird to see it suddenly come back into fashion now and it suddenly... Yeah, it just comes in waves, doesn't it, that kind of stuff. And it's an odd thing that it will ever, you know, there'll be a time perhaps in, you know, in the next 10 years or so where people will sort of fade away a little bit again. Is that something that you think you need to fight to stop or are you just happy to let it flow? I find it really interesting. And I was writing about this recently um, in one of my columns. And because there's this, there's this New York Times article from 1976 that I stumbled upon 
um, a few years ago, and it it's it was like looking into a crystal ball because it was talking about the houseplant phenomenon that had been witnessed over the past ten years from the mid sixties onwards, and it was reporting on its decline. Um, and, and it and you know we all know what happened in the eighties. Everyone ushered in like minimalism and orchids. So and I'm not the biggest orchid <laughs> fan, and I'm just like, oh god, we got to see if orchids ahead of us. Um, I think. You know, I think what will happen with the houseplant phenomenon is that people are going to realise that the um, environmental aspects of them are, are not amazing. Um, and I'm sort of sitting and, and wondering how that's going to play out from a kind of chin stroking perspective. For me, I think having it's a bit like take tofu or quinoa or veganism like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was a sort of strange thing that sometimes appeared in the pages of certain publications and now I mean I don't really cook meat in my house anymore right like this is I think people's engagement with the outside world and conversations about it are only going to lead to good things in terms of okay once we've accepted that people need to grow things to feel better are we going to have conversations about land access are we going to have conversations about privilege in the countryside are we going to have you know, bigger, broader conversations that can help us achieve greater um, things more broadly regarding sustainability and, you know, the ecological crisis and the, the social crisis that we're facing. I think you can't put it back in the box and I think it's a gateway to much bigger things. I heard an interview with you where you quite openly spoke about how when you started you were killing plants and it wasn't, you know, you didn't take to it immediately. And I think that's something, I, one thing I consider is like, if I'm buying all these plants from an environmental perspective, they come home, I kill them. And then, you know, it's that kind of thing where that was my first consideration of it not being maybe that good for the environment. But anyway, that, that aside, what I'd like to ask you is if you're open about how it wasn't that easy to get straight into, you had a few difficulties in your early days of growing things. What would you say to someone listening to this who sort of likes the idea but thinks, oh, it's too much effort, it's not for me? What would you say, first bits of uh, knowledge that you would like to have heard yourself when you started out? I think there's so, you know, I was so desperate for a kind of kind helping hand and, and also a permission granting. And I still seek permission granting now from my friends who are far more experienced gardeners than me. Um, it's funny that you say, oh, in the beginning you were killing things because like, I've been in a bit of a slump over the past few days because I managed to knock, I basically managed to kill a couple of things this weekend and I felt quite sad about it. Like, you know, this is this is what it is to garden and to engage with, um, with living things that you are bringing into your life. Like, sometimes it doesn't work out. And I think permission granting is far more useful than any kind of information. I could say, oh, you know, work out where the light comes in your space. Use these plants, they'll be happy. Make sure you've got the biggest container you've got and it's got a hole in it. All of those things will help. But what I really wanted when I was a beginner was someone to be like, this looks great, you're doing a good job. Doesn't really matter if it doesn't go right, something else will. Um, and you know, yes, you can get bogged, every kind of, my first, my first ever gardening book was aimed at Total Beginners, it was published in 2017, it's called How to Grow Stuff, and I, I kind of wrote that as a, a total opposite to all of the gardening books I'd got out of the library, which the first chapter is entirely about compost, and that's, that's important, I can talk about soil all day, but 
you, you know, it's it's completely conf- like confusing if you've just got to, you just want to grow some herbs on a balcony. Um, and so I think really being, you know, being told you put, this might not survive, but the next time you'll know why it died um, it is really useful. And, and to look, the most important thing you can do in gardening is look. And it's what I spend most of my day doing. I'm looking at my garden right now. I look at it all day over the top of my laptop. Um, you know, so so having confidence, not worrying if it doesn't go right and, and looking for the times when it does is probably what I would have said. But then I'd probably want to just turn around and be like, yes, but what plant food do I use? So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Okay, Alice, uh, what would you like to offer up as your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem? So I'm not even sure how hidden a gem this is, apart from in the way it was hidden to me and in the wake of having read it, everyone I've spoken to has been like, oh, I've not heard of that. So maybe it's hidden enough. It's a book called Wild, An Elemental Journey, and it's by Jay Griffiths, who is an incredible writer and a climate activist and who has been so ahead of the curve. And she, Wild is a book about the seven years that she spent um, living and speaking to indigenous tribes around the world. And it's an examination of wildness and the colonial creation of the understanding of wildness. Um, And it is a book that really um, is not only beautifully written, but it spells out very clearly the impact of colonialism on causing the climate crisis. Um, And it's not always an easy read, but it's certainly a galvanizing one. And she's such a writer's writer. She is such a brilliant writer. Um, So yeah, Wild by Jay Griffiths is my hidden gem. Alice, you do loads of projects all over social media. You have your column and all that kind of thing. So could you tell the listeners where they can get involved with what you do and all your different projects all over social media platforms and everything like that. Sure. So on a day-to-day basis, uh, I'm best to be followed on Instagram. It's instagram.com slash nauticulture. Um, and in terms of words, you can find my book, Root Boundary, Wilding Alive, and uh, others on my bookshop.org page and um there's also i also write a newsletter which you can find in my instagram bio but yeah my instagram bio has links to my recent writing my newsletter and my books so probably just there okay yeah thanks a lot for talking to me today you're welcome thank you for having me 